Welcome, welcome back to Spotlight 19. Wow, it's hot. You can tell in my voice it's hot. Air condition is not running, so we got a nice quiet show here. Blood, sweat and tears, that's what it's going to take. In this case, sweat, maybe a few tears, we'll see. Very, very hot day from Hurley, New York. Wednesday, July 19th, 2017. I'll be telling you about John Faso's voting record in June since June 22nd, as I promised. That will be followed by five fast Faso facts. And then Saja's interview with Antonio Delgado, candidate running for representative Faso's seat in election next year. But first... A few updates. Representative Fazzo still refuses to post his schedule publicly. So finding out about where he will be is still exceedingly difficult. His online schedule is almost always blank. And we've been relying mainly on tips from others to determine if he will be on the radio or on the television and so forth. With regards to... Eid, which is the Muslim end of Ramadan celebration, and Spotlight 19's request for Representative Faso to wish Muslims in the district a happy Ramadan and, or Eid Mubarak, there was no wish. And we would ask this of any religion being left out. Now, this is disappointing, but not surprising. However, Saja was able to get through on WAMC's Fox Pop radio program to ask Fazo about this issue and our invitation to him to respond to us. And Fazo did apologize and said he was not aware of our requests. He directed Saja to call the Kingston office to set up a meeting, which she has done, and now we're awaiting a call back. Given his answer, my concern has only grown that his DC staffers do not get the messages we leave for him. Fazo did add that he was against discrimination and mentioned he had been to a Bangladeshi Muslim or several services in Hudson twice in the past two years. We could not find documentation of this on John Fazo's campaign social media and our understanding is that while there is an annual Bangladeshi cultural fair held in Hudson, this is a cultural event without religious component. We will be following up on this issue, though, so stay tuned. Moving on to the bills. Now, there are a wide variety of votes that we will be discussing, ranging from good, bad, to (laughs) too ugly. And I'll be going through them in that order. Starting with a bright spot in a barrage of bleak bills, FASO co-sponsored a bill that authorizes states to continue to provide foster care services to children until they reach 21 or 23 and redistribute federal funds to states that opt in. This is a good bill, and New York City already actually does this. However, foster children are much more likely to be recipients of Medicaid. So Fazo's vote to repeal Obamacare by kicking 22 million people off Medicaid doesn't square with the intent of the foster care bill. On June 27th, Fazo, along with almost everyone in the House, voted to reaffirm the United States' commitment to NATO. While I'm assured by his vote, it's a sad state of affairs that we need to reaffirm this bedrock alliance at all. 
when the president is making such harmful statements to the world, at least Congress has taken this important action, and Faso was on the right side. On June 28th, Faso voted for a bill that caps the amount someone on Medicaid can recover from a doctor's malpractice. This is a truly despicable vote, and I don't often say that. Basically, if a doctor leaves a sponge, let's say, for example, inside someone who is on Medicaid, during the lawsuit, that person recovers less financially than someone with private insurance. It's discrimination based on wealth, and there's no way to explain this one away. Although Spotlight 19 awaits the update to Fazzo's vote explanation, uh, we'll see what his spin is on this one. On June 29th, Fazzo voted to cut any state or federal grant funding for sanctuary cities. So here in New York 19, the Kingston Common Council adopted a resolution declaring it would be welcoming and inclusive to undocumented immigrants. What Faso's vote and now the bill has been sent to the Senate will do is remove any opportunities for Kingston to receive funding and perpetuate the negative xenophobic associations with immigrants and will essentially burden local governments in his own district. Turning to an environmental vote. On the Water Supply Permitting Coordination Act, John Faso, along with all Republicans, voted to essentially speed up the permitting process for new reservoirs in the West, which will mean a quicker environmental review process. The bill puts the oversight in the hands of the Bureau of Reclamation, a federal agency that deals with the West, but also one that was severely reduced in size in the 1990s after the West was deemed, quote, reclaimed, unquote. There is no explanation for why this bill was necessary other than burdens on developers, which are huge construction companies. So to put it in context, it would be similar to a new Ashokan Reservoir here and not having to go through the various local, state, federal review processes. Yes, indeed. Five fast FASO facts. We're back. We left off with our last FASO facts two episodes ago with John FASO in law school at Georgetown. So, number one, he graduated in 1979, but was not admitted to the New York bar until 1981. We don't have information about when or how many times John FASO took the bar exam, but we're curious about the delay between his graduation and admission date. Number two. During law school, between 1975 and 1979, Faso worked at the Washington representative for Nassau County. So Faso first started working in government 42 years ago. Number three. Immediately after graduating law school, Faso was a staffer for Representative John Weidler of Nassau County until 1981. Now, Representative John Weidler was a Eisenhower Republican who supported nuclear power and voted on party lines. Number four. So we reviewed 100 bills from the 96th Congress, the session for which Faso would have been working for Weidler. 
and none of the bills sponsored by Weidler became law during that time, and many related to nuclear energy. Spotlight 19 will further investigate Weidler's voting record during the time Fazo worked in the office. And finally, five. Fazo bought his home in Kinderhook in 1983 because he wanted to replace New York State Assemblyman Larry Lane, who was the deputy minority leader of the Assembly in the early 80s. You're listening to Spotlight 19 on a very, very hot day. (laughs) Now we're going to take you to our interview section, Saja and congressional candidate Antonio Delgado. This interview was recorded at Hurley Sound on Saturday the 15th, a few days ago. And it was very hot also. (laughs) We can't run the air conditioners while we're recording. So you may hear a few um, drops of sweat falling, but very interesting interview. Enjoy. Welcome to Spotlight 19, Antonio. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Congratulations on out-fundraising John Fazzo this quarter. That must be really exciting. Uh, Before we get into the heavier topics, Justin had this really important question this morning for you. We were looking at your Twitter feed, and he's wondering if your beautiful twin boys are named after jazz musicians John Coltrane and Max Roach. (laughs) Well, first, before I answer that question, I want to thank you both for having me. Um, What you're doing uh, here, putting a spotlight on on a very important district, uh, one that I think um, is full of energy right now. I think people are engaged. I think people... Are, are mobilizing um, and are in real need for change um, and want to bring that change about. And so the work you're doing on the ground, keeping folks informed, uh, keeping them locked and loaded uh, for this long uh, haul ahead um, is uh, is good work. So I appreciate that and thank you both. Okay. Uh, now on the question of um, Maxwell and Coltrane, Coltrane is named after John Coltrane. Um, he is uh, my favorite uh, jazz musician. And Maxwell actually is named after the R&B singer, uh, Maxwell, uh, who is my favorite R&B singer. So those, uh, that's where the names come from. <laughs> that's great. So tell us a little bit about your connection to New York Congressional District 19, where you're from, and why you're deciding to run here in particular. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, a, a lot of what's moving me in this direction has a lot to do with where, I, where I'm born, uh, where I come from. And I'm from Schenectady. Schenectady, blue-collar town, working-class family. My parents worked for General Electric for, for a long time. Uh, and I was a latchkey kid. I'm not sure if nowadays, you know, parents can do this, but uh, at I the was, age... I was at latchkey also yeah. uh, in the second grade. Yeah, yeah. So I started <laughs> at the age of 10. Uh, so fifth grade for me, uh, my brother was eight. I would come home, the key was under the mat, let ourselves in, and we had pretty strict rules. My mother was, and my dad were pretty strict in terms of the rules of the house. Um, it was do your homework, leave it on the counter, and they would come home every day after their long day at work and go over that homework with a red pen. Um, so they were serious. And, you know, I think back then what they were doing, uh, like a lot of parents were back then, was buying into this idea that in this country, education is, is the gateway. You know, it's the way you climb up out of your class, up out of your circumstance. Uh, and I watched them over the years work very hard 
to pull us up out of the working class into the middle class. And by the time I was in high school, my freshman year, we moved out to the suburbs and of Schenectady County and, and, and bought our first real home. You know, my dad took me out uh, to a plot of land and showed me the land and said, this is what hard work gets you in this country. This idea that in this country anything is possible, opportunities are right there for you if you just put the work in. They had the jobs to preach that, and we lived that. I went to Colgate, studied philosophy and political theory at Colgate, earned a Rhodes Scholarship. And what's fascinating about that is, you know, when I was growing up, my, my mother didn't know what it was. She didn't understand it. I didn't even understand it until I got to college, really. Um, now, when she found out, she told everybody, of course. Um, As she but, should. Yeah, she should. <laughs> um, but, but it speaks to what's possible in this country when, when we get things right. When we, when we emphasize education, when our values um, speak to who we are as a people uh, and we focus on the public good and, and not on private greed. Uh, after uh, I came back from Oxford, I went to law school at Harvard and I met my wife, Lacey. Now, Lacey, uh, like me, grew up in this region. She grew up in Woodstock, uh, went to Kingston High School, parents, small business owners. Her mother does a store in Socrates right now, her father, a local accountant. Um, so this is home for the both of us. Um, and we both lived out an experience. She went to Georgetown uh, and then went to law school and has become a filmmaker, um, very successful in her own right. After law school, I had two careers. Uh, one was in the music business. Uh, work oh, wow. with young, yes, work with young kids uh, through hip hop culture, trying to figure out how to inspire them to get excited about learning and civic engagement. Now, that was a tough choice. I mean, I had a lot of law school debt hanging over my head, um, but it felt real and felt right to me to help kids receive the same uh, inspiration uh, around education, understand how important it is for their own growth. Uh, both individually and within their communities. And then I moved back home to New York, and my wife, Lacey, and I started a family, and I've been a lawyer at a law firm for the last six, seven years. Now, this is, this is my story, right? This is the journey that I've lived, and my wife has lived, and we've lived good lives. Um, but here's the other story that's been going on uh, on a parallel track. The jobs that my parents had in this country, uh, the GE jobs, the IBMs that were once here, uh, the focus on education, uh, the focus on the public good and on community and on service, um, has shifted. Our political leaders have shifted the focus and the priorities uh, to private greed, uh, to just incentivizing wealth for the sake of wealth. And not enough time has been spent on working families anymore. Uh, and, and as the economy has doubled in size, wages have remained stagnant. Uh, people are struggling no matter how hard they work to get by. Uh, and that frustrates me. Uh, it really does. And I look around and I don't see anybody in D.C. really doing a damn thing about it. Uh, I think they're there. Uh, Bought and paid for. I know FASO is. Um, and I think it's time for folks who came up in my generation, who lived out this experience uh, right here in this area, uh, to fight for those same opportunities uh, that were afforded to us and allow stories like mine, these American dream stories, to actually happen. Sure. And that's something that I think has been missing. I think it's something that I was fortunate enough to see in the first presidential uh, vote I cast was for Barack Obama. And it's unfortunate that we're we've kind of moved away from that. And it's been happening since really 2010 when the Citizens United decision came down and allowed the infiltration of money in politics. That's actually the next question I have for you, and it's something you just mentioned about politicians who are bought and paid for. I mentioned earlier you actually successfully outpaced John Fazzo in fundraising this quarter, but how did we get to this point where you must have hundreds of thousands of dollars to run for Congress, and how will you make sure you're not acting solely in the interests of your donors? Yeah, great question. And, you know, listen, it is, um, it is a sad state of affairs right now in terms of how much uh, money uh, influences our democracy. It's undermining 
our democracy. When the more and more inequality we have in this country, and, and it's the, the facts bear this out, I mean, top 10% or 90% of the wealth, it, it's one of those things now where you can't deny inequality. So if you accept that there's real inequality in this country, then there's a real problem for our democracy uh, when only those who have money actually can influence it, right? There's only a handful of people who have the means, therefore, to actually break into the democracy and make it work for their benefit at the expense of millions of other people's lives. That's a fundamental problem with our democracy. And Citizens United just threw gasoline on the fire. It literally said, we're going to just let you guys run rampant here and give unlimited amounts of money. And in some cases, not even disclose where it comes from. That is antithetical to democracy. It's, it, it is a direct attack on democracy. And so there's no question that we have to fight very hard against this. And listen, in my ideal world, all campaigns be publicly financed. Uh, we got to fight for that end. We got to fight for that goal. And I will be a voice for that objective should I win and be a voice on the stage here for folks in Hudson Valley and the Catskills. But now, I'm also somebody who is practical. And I don't do anything if I don't think there's a path to victory. This is not an exercise in futility. Uh, this is a path that I want to pursue to take back this seat. Uh, we are competing against an individual who was backed by a lot of money. Paul Singer, Robert Mercer, a lot of money flowing out. The Koch brothers, they are out there and they're ready to prepare to fund him at large amounts. So it is up to us on our side to come prepared to. You have to be able to raise money to succeed. It is not everything, but it is a very critical piece to any path to victory. Uh, so being able to outraise Faso both in the first quarter and the second quarter demonstrates a real willingness on our part to do the hard work of tapping into our network. And our network are individuals. Individuals, just like my wife and I, who've gone on to do professional careers and, and do well for themselves, who, like everybody else right now, are really engaged and are trying to figure out how they can help uh, and what they can do to make sure that we are in the best position to succeed in this race. So we're very proud of our success in that regard. We're going to keep pushing to make sure that we are best equipped to take out Mr. Faso. Sure. I'm glad that you're mentioning that, you know, you can have a position where you don't want money in politics. I think that there is agreement that there is too much, but you also can't fight back, especially in this seat where it's backed by so much money from these corporate big corporations where you have to have this fundraising apparatus here in order to, you know, make the progress necessary to campaign. Then it's a great point. And you really want to make sure that folks on the ground put some skin in the game too, right? I mean, the more and more, whether it's $2, a dollar, $5, you build that out. When you put skin in the game, when you invest in the future, you know, you, you dig in a little bit more. You know, you fight a little bit more. You believe a little bit more. And so there's a process in which we're building over time that we think ultimately can win out. I genuinely believe there's a lot more of us. Uh, there's the people, the issues, our concerns, uh, right-minded, like-minded people right now are all engaged. And if we all sort of, you know, push both in terms of our resources and our energy, uh, the opportunity is there. You, you, you know, the money um, is, a, is a big piece. But come on, if you're, not, if you're not in this for the right reasons, if you're not in this because you don't believe uh, in something bigger and something greater and, and who we are as people, you know, who are we, right? Remember that we're about what we're about. Freedom, opportunity, you know, fair play, justice. These things matter. Um, and you got to fight for those things. And it, that's where it starts with me. And so when you ask that question, how will I not be influenced by big donors? Because what's driving me 
are those set of principles. What's driving me is the lessons that I learned growing up in church, sitting on my mother's lap, you know, when I was six, seven, eight years old. That's what's driving me. And that's what should be driving uh, people that are interested in these sorts of positions that have power. But ultimately, they're just a lot of work. You have to reach out to every type of constituent that is in your district and in your community. It's not about, you know, fame and fortune. It's not a high paying job. It's it's a lot of work. And that's all jobs in government. I think that people forget that the decision to work in government, uh, I you get a lot of pushback sometimes. Oh, you're just doing it for the power. It's, it's power. It's not really mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. the job is about. It entails right. constituent services, which we were talking about a bit uh, off the recording. But moving yeah. on to actually a different topic, a lot of the rhetoric from John Fazzo has to do with population loss in the district and the high cost of living here. We at Spotlight 19 have disputed the extent and the reasons behind the loss, but we also recognize that there is a lack of jobs in the area, which discourages people from starting families here. There aren't very many opportunities for young people. Where do you stand on this narrative that's been pushed by John Fazzo that there's this tremendous loss in population and the only way that we can combat this loss and encourage growth here is to cut property taxes. That's really the only solution that he's offered so far. What do you think about all of that? Yeah, I mean, well, I would start by saying that, you know, as I've traveled the district and I, I spent three months before I announced proving to myself uh, and to my family and our network that we can do this. We didn't just announce um, without first putting in the work. You know, we met with county chairs, local electeds, activist groups, community leaders, um, and we raised money, you know. So we did all these things to show what we're capable of before I said I'm running. And then once we did those things, I felt confident uh, and I felt like I had done enough due diligence uh, and offered enough respect and showed enough deference to the community to say, "Okay, now it's time to go. We're collectively on board. Let's make this happen. I say that because while I've traveled the district and and while I've engaged and listened to folks, one of the things that I've heard is this sense of uh, lack of opportunity, Uh, you know, that people are scared that their kids can't find work that's going to keep them here Um, and and that allows them to build out their futures uh, for generations to come. And that's a sad story, you know, and I think one of the reasons that Lacey and I decided to come back home is to push back against this and make sure that people can stay, that our kids can grow up here uh, and have a life of their own. If they want to, they can make the choice to stay here and raise their children. And so that is a real issue. Uh, and it's one that we must continue to work on because opportunities, livable wages, um, good education, we have to continue to fight for these things uh, to make sure the future is there. Now, the property tax issue uh, is a very narrow way uh, to address this structural problem. It is an exceedingly narrow way. The way you create opportunity and growth in this area is you invest in it. You have to do the hard work of identifying where the growth opportunities are, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's agriculture, you know, whether it's high tech manufacturing jobs. You have to actually do the work of figuring out where it is in this district. Then you got to actually empower it, roll back some of the red tape, make sure the regulations actually don't put too much weight on the small business owner uh, and the entrepreneur looking to get ahead. And you got to invest. You know, find sources of funding from the government or private funding. But you got to work hard to do this. You know, infrastructure matters, too. You know, our roadways, you know, broadband access. These things matter. You got to invest in these things. And lastly, education, the gateway. 
right? Preparing not only our K through 12 students, but also working with our workforce so that they are retrained and prepared for the jobs that are actually out there and available to them. That is a framework. That is how you actually create opportunity in this area. That one little sliver of property tax, while an important piece, uh, is way too short-sighted. Uh, and it speaks to how he's not really focused on real change here. It sounds to me like you have some solid plans and have made some strides in identifying the areas that we can address to make some changes here. Uh, on a different note, this week, Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice cracked down on doctors and clinics allegedly committing fraud to fuel the opioid crisis. While that's needed, it's clear that the opioid crisis is also fueled by the dark web and foreign powers, and it's unclear whether the Department of Justice is equipped to handle these 21st century issues. It seems that the department is moving backwards and supporting for-profit prisons and mandatory minimum sentences, which are two issues that I think there was broad bipartisan support that we should be moving away from those courses. What are some of your thoughts on these important issues? Yeah, I mean, I think on the opioid uh, crisis that, that this district in particular is really dealing with and, and struggling with, we have to get away from criminalizing this behavior uh, and treat it uh, like a health issue that it is. Um, people who are addicted uh, you know, to opioids, uh, they're suffering. You know, they're in pain. And you don't just throw them in jail to deal with the problem. You have to help them and give them the treatment that they need. Instead of sending them to jail, you send them to drug treatment centers. But here's the thing, that folks like Fazo appear to be not registering her, which is if you're going to cut Medicaid, as this health care bill is designed to do, you are going to be cutting the funds that we need to put together, make sure that these drug treatment centers actually are there. And, and, and provide the services that the addicts are going to need to get back on track. Uh, so you can't have it both ways. You can't say you care and that you're sympathetic and that you want to work and, and help roll back and fight against epi the opioid epidemic. And on the other hand, roll back the very funding that would help it. You can't have it both ways. So that's my first you know, piece on, on the opioid uh, crisis. I would then turn to this, uh, the mandatory sentences uh, piece. You know, I've done some, a lot of pro bono work as an attorney, uh, around uh, this very issue. Uh, you know, I have worked with the Juvenile Law Center. Um, after the Supreme Court in Miller v. Alabama said it was unconstitutional to lock up juveniles uh, on a mandatory life sentence without parole, um, there was a new wave of sentences that had to come down the pipeline. And so Aiken Gump stepped up and, and, and took on a lot of cases on a pro bono basis uh, to help young kids who've been locked up for 15, 20, 25, 30 years and have no future in sight. Um, and while they did commit a crime, in some cases, they weren't even the shooter. Uh, they were 15, 14. They really didn't have any idea what was going on. They may have even been bullied into the situation, you know, come from a broken home. You know, there are all types of factors, mitigating factors that our court system didn't even consider. Right. And so here they are still 15, 20, 25 years later, locked up with no future. So finally, we see this trend going in the right direction. Uh, and then Sessions comes along and wants to roll it all back. And for what? For what? I don't understand it. And I think we have to push very aggressively against it. It's hard to remain hopeful when you see all of these issues that have been studied for 20, 30 years and being rolled back for 
because I really do believe that Jeff Sessions is beholden to uh, his donors and the for-profit prison um, stocks went up the day after the election. And it's something that we should not lose sight of. But there's just so much to talk about because there's an issue in every, you know, with every agency here. And with that, I would turn to uh, the Department of Education, which has come up throughout this talk, at the role of education that it played in your life, and I know it did for me as well. There's been this reversal, of course, just like the Department of Justice, Betsy DeVos supports the voucher system, which is clearly against the interests of this district, which is so rural. John Faso has been mostly silent about these issues. It's hard to kind of figure out what his position is, but he has stated previously that he does not believe in the the Department of Education as an agency. That's something he said in the past. What's your position about how we can help some of these rural schools and what we can do to combat the new kind of mission of the Department of Education, which is to support these privately funded schools, which is really what Betsy DeVos is going to be trying to do? Yes. I mean, listen, as I shared in my, uh, my own story, uh, education is essential. Uh, and it has been for a very long time the gateway to opportunity in this country. Um, our democracy doesn't work if people aren't uh, educated, if they're not informed, if they're not aware of uh, the facts. Um, so it's critical that we create and that we educate an electorate uh, that can be engaged uh, and that knows what it means to be a citizen, to vote, to show up and on school boards and, and to really be a part of the community. Now, in terms of the, the rule public schools. Uh, they're more than just schools. You know, in these, in these rural parts of the district, um, like in many parts of the country in rural parts, they're, they're community centers. You know, the high school football games, you know, the basketball games, these bring community folk out to congregate, you know, to build together, to have conversations, to fellowship. This is not just about education in some respects. It's about making sure that the community um, ha- has the support it needs to come together and live together and build together. And so when you start undercutting the funding and you start deprioritizing public schools in these areas, you're deprioritizing communities. You're creating more and more fragmentation, uh, which we don't need right now in the age of social media. We need to find ways that bind us together. We need to find those. We need to support those institutions that remind us what it's like to actually live in a community and build together and unify. And so we have to get away from this idea that uh, uh, we can we should just abandon public education. It is the gateway. We have to fund it. We have to prioritize it. And not just education in the standpoint of what goes on in the classroom, but education leading up to in-classroom education, empowering our communities, making sure that the kids in those communities have public libraries to learn and grow and foster their minds, that they're actually coming to school well-fed and nourished, right? So that their, their families have the support that they need so they can maximize their educational experience. And then after-school programs should be in place as well to keep kids uh, from being idle, right? How do you keep people engaged over the long haul so that they can have a good, strong foundation? That has to be the focus of what we're about in this country. One of the issues that we have not had an episode without addressing is health care. The new bill was just released. It's pretty much the same as it was before, just as harmful. Um, John Fazzo's property tax amendment is still included in it. 
what do you what do you think about this effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, which did provide so many opportunities to so many in this district to get health insurance for the first time? Right. So we, we've talked about values um, and, and, and you know, during this interview um, and, you know, this idea of uh, dignity um, and, and character and, and uh, compassion um, for each other, love. Uh, you know, to me, uh, this health care bill is an assault um, on all of those values. Um, it is it is deeply un-American um, and, and it, it speaks to uh, how far removed our political leaders are uh, from everyday ordinary folks uh, who just want to build and live better lives and provide for their children. Um, the idea that we would literally seek to roll back and take millions of people off of health care. Um, is deeply troubling and it is immoral, particularly when the intent is simply to give uh, tax breaks uh, to a handful of people who don't need those breaks. You don't take from the least uh, to give to those who don't need anything. Uh, But this is exactly what this bill is doing. Um, And it is immoral. It is flat out cruel. Um, And the only reason why the Republicans are doing it is because they simply can, not because of any sort of uh, fiscal responsibility or even some sort of ideological grounding. It's just because they have the power and they want to do it. And there's a certain people who have bought and paid for their position who say this must be done. Um, And I'm sick of it. And I think the people of this area and the Catskills and Hudson Valley are sick of it. And we got to fight like hell to make sure uh, that this type of legislation is not tolerated at all. Um, And so that, to me, is a critical issue that we have to stand strong on and stand firm. And the idea that FASO uh, was the deciding vote to even get the first version out of the budget committee um, is really troubling. Uh, Beyond that, he promised to not defund Planned Parenthood on record, but then voted for a bill that does that. What about your word? What about your honesty, your integrity? He then promised a woman on camera, Andrea Mitchell. And said, listen, I'm not going to put your pre-existing condition, your protections around that, your guaranteed protections around that at risk. Well, this vote rolls back that guaranteed protection. How do you look a woman in the eye, hug her uh, and say something like that and then turn around and vote for a bill that rolls back that protection? That speaks something to me beyond politics. You know, we were just talking offline about morality. It speaks about who you are. What's your core? What do you believe in? Your political decisions should on some level, if not all be grounded in moral sensibilities, what's right. So that, that to me, this is an issue that is a profound one and we must uh, not relent. The question that I love to ask because it kind of takes us out of all these Uh, grueling issues and thinking about how we can impact change. What are some of your non-political plans in the district? Yes, well, I have twin boys. Um, They turned four in August. And so um, I'm very excited to celebrate their their fourth birthday with them. Um, We'll do some sort of barbecue and have family and friends over. And uh, they always pick a theme. Um, this year it might be Paw Patrol. They did Paw Patrol last year. For any f- parent out there, they know what Paw Patrol is. But um, yeah, that's that's what I'm looking forward to. I mean, I love uh, being a dad. I really do. Um, it is uh, a very eye-opening experience. Um, and it reminds me a lot about the, the, the preciousness and how beautiful life actually can be if we just, you know, focus on innocence. Um, and so they, they're, they're awesome. And so being able to spend time with them, my wife, uh, that's what I look forward to. 
it's been so great to have you. We hope to have you back again and yeah. uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. It's been a beautiful day outside. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, hospitality has been lovely and uh, excited to be here and excited for you guys You know, to keep building this thing out. Um, it's still early on in the process, so the momentum will continue to grow. I'm sure it is. Uh, I'm sure it will. And uh, look forward to watching your own journeys uh, and seeing how this all unfolds. And Thanks. I'm sure we'll see each other again. Saja there with Antonio Delgado. And that wraps up our show today. We hope you've enjoyed and we thank you for listening. If you like this, let someone know about the podcast so we can grow support. We're learning a lot and we're very happy to share uh, as much as we, we can. And we will be back as more unfolds. Reach out to us on, on social media. Give us your feedback. Uh, we'd love to hear it. So until we return, enjoy this wonderfully hot week. And we'll see you again very soon. Be well. You don't need